Today, I had the honor of talking with David Nielsen. If you're a business owner or manager, I think you'll really enjoy this episode as we dive into some of the challenges business owners face today with labor. David is the co-founder and CEO of both Guidant Financial and Doxa Talent. He provides an immense amount of knowledge and experience dealing with offshore talent. In our conversation, he really opened my eyes to many of the benefits of hiring global talent and the different types of businesses that could benefit from such services. As a lifelong investor and entrepreneur, David has unique insights on so many different aspects of business like culture, operations, and making companies more efficient. I hope you enjoy this episode with David Nielsen. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I was wondering if we could start out um, by giving us just a little background on what originally got you into business and entrepreneurship, and then the days kind of leading up to the launch of Doxa and Guidant. I, uh, back in the late 90s, I was extremely interested in the stock market, and this is when the, the, you know, the internet bubble was just starting, and, and you could literally throw a dart at the Wall Street Journal and, and probably pick a winner. Uh, I got really interested in that part of the, the market. And, you know, as a young kid, I actually put some money to work in the stock market, made some good money doing so. Uh, and, you know, just kind of followed my passion for investing into real estate. Uh, following that, I actually took some time away from uh, both my education and work to develop uh, raw land. I mean, they had reactivated the Navy base in Bremerton, Washington due to the war on terror. And so I went over there and started buying up raw lots with a friend of mine who was a third generation developer. And we'd pull the timber off, cut out a pad, pull utilities up to that, that location, sell it off to manufactured home dealers. Uh, and as fast as I could develop them, we could sell them off at a nice uh, tidy profit. And so I got involved in real estate. And through that, I met a, an individual who was also in the business of real estate, uh, more on the, the selling side. And uh, we decided that there might be an interesting opportunity for us to collaborate because he had carved out this niche in speculative real estate, had a lot of people who were interested in investing. And I had these properties and I wanted to do more and more of them, but I was limited by the amount of cash that we had. And so we thought maybe if we come together, we could do something interesting. We sat down with a real estate attorney one day and talked about putting this business together. And she suggested that we look at retirement assets as a way to raise capital. And at the time, I thought that retirement assets were just preserved for investing in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Uh, didn't realize that you could actually invest those in things like real estate and private mortgages, tax liens, even small businesses. So long story short, we helped uh, a couple of uh, investors use their retirement assets to invest in these development projects. Uh, they got a nice return. And then all of a sudden, my phone started ringing. So uh, this individual, Jeremy, and I, who started Guidant, that was sort of the beginning of Guidant. We started getting phone calls from people that, that wanted to learn how to invest their retirement assets in real estate transactions. And originally we thought, well, we'll build a consultancy and help people invest in our business, our, our investments. Uh, but ultimately realized that there was a much bigger opportunity to take that sort of concept to Main Street uh, America. And we launched Guidant as a result of that. So initially, Guidant was actually focused on helping people invest in real estate or what we called non-standard assets. Uh, and eventually, it, you know, it obviously evolved from there. That's awesome. And then if I if I recall properly, you had actually an internal once guidance gets up and going, there was kind of an internal catalyst that triggered your launch of Doxa. Is that correct? Well, yeah. So, I mean, we operated. I mean, guidance is still in operation today and Jeremy is still the CEO. Um, we, you know, we launched the business in 2003 and then 
around 2015, you know, because of a variety of factors, you know, Seattle was its own sort of unique economic animal. The $15 minimum wage was gaining momentum. Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Costco and Boeing and all these massive employers were gobbling up the talent in the area. And two things were happening. One, uh, wages were outpacing our growth. We started to notice that the cost of labor was rising faster than our growth 15 years later. Um, and then secondly, our team members were having to move further and further out uh, as a result of the cost of living increases in that area. And it was just creating this dynamic that was very challenging. And so we knew we had to do something different. And we looked at everything from, uh, you know, distributing the, the workforce across the country to putting in place a multi-campus um, uh, structure to outsourcing and offshoring. We looked at all sorts of different opportunities. Uh, ultimately, we did uh, split the campus. We used to all be in Bellevue, Washington. We decided to open up a Boise, uh, Idaho location where I am today. Uh, and we also went to the Philippines and Vietnam and started uh, leveraging global talent as a way to sort of augment uh, some of the things that we were dealing with here in the U.S. Uh, and so ultimately, I, you know, I had, a, I had five years to sort of cut my teeth in terms of how to work with global talent, where are some of the challenges in the industry. We started building process and systems around that and eventually realized we were doing this very differently than a lot of uh, other individuals. And when the pandemic hit, we thought, well, this is an opportunity to take something that we think every uh, business needs to develop, a competency that every business needs to have in order to be successful or stay competitive long term. And so we launched Doxa as a way to do that. That's awesome. And so what what kind of roles were being taken offshore? Or what were these executive assistant roles? I mean, talk to me about uh, what roles were being utilized. Yeah, most, I mean, here's what I would say. Most people, when they think about offshoring, they think about entry level, right? They think I'll take the work that I, I, I don't want to do here or I don't want to pay for here and I'll send that off into this lower cost geography. Uh, and that, that is a strategy that many people uh, use and, and can be successful. Uh, I mean, to be frank, when we first did it, we took some of our more, what I would say, um, predictable work and did the same thing. But ultimately what we found is we were spending more time in that, that area is that the availability of talent is very similar to that anywhere in the world. If you need to find marketing automation experts, if you need to find graphic designers or tax professionals, accountants, software engineers, it's all available there. And we found actually the further we moved up in our org chart and the more that we leveraged highly skilled labor versus just administrative professionals, we extracted even more and more value. So today, you know, we're helping people fill all the roles I just mentioned, plus lawyers and uh, sales development reps and all sorts of other professions. Yeah, that's interesting. I know I got first introduced to this whole idea through some of Tim Ferriss's writings. You know, he's, he's an advocate for yeah. utilizing services like this. And I've always just thought of it as an executive assistant role or lower, you know, lower level tasks. But after talking with some people that have shifted their business in this direction, it's pretty amazing. They just keep going up the org chart, like you said. I mean, I, I mean, I know, I know entrepreneurs who have built businesses with dozens and dozens of employees and none of them or team members, I should say, none of them are actually in the U S so you can actually build organizations that way. What's really interesting is that I think there's really power in having both, right? So um, I'll use guidance as the, the case study here today. Guidant has over 200 professionals uh, working to serve their clients across the U S and about a third of them are in different parts of the world. So they've gone out and said, Hey, look, you know, we don't have to have everybody here. If, if you don't have 
if you don't have to be physically present to deliver the service or provide, uh, you know, whatever that, that uh, job requires, then it can literally be done anywhere. And I think a lot of companies are starting to recognize that now, given the pandemic forces all to close our doors and move into a fully virtual environment, we saw actually you can be productive and you can collaborate. And as a result of that, I think people have just got a, a, a better openness to this. But going back to the Tim Ferriss comment, I read that book, Four Hour Workweek, you know, years and years ago, I heard this or read the same things that you obviously did. And I will say that that is a very valuable strategy. We have a whole program for just VAs because it, it is not just something that, you know, helps you not work on some of the things that you'd rather not, but it actually can be a defender of your time. Uh, and if they're trained right, they can add a lot of value. So you saw an opportunity at Guidant due to margin compression, due to increased cost of living in Seattle that spurred this. But when, when should business owners and managers look at starting to implement doing the same thing you did? Is it, is it just, mar I mean, should everyone, when you're starting a company, should you always be thinking about this? I mean, I believe the answer is yes. I mean, as I said earlier, I think this is a capability that most business owners are going to need to develop to stay competitive long-term. Um, I think it, you know, it creates some interesting opportunities when you're looking at the arbitrage benefits between these different geographies, right? It, it creates margin or opportunity for you to invest in other areas. It could be in your people onshore, it could be in technology, it could be in other areas. If, if you have the ability to manage people in a remote environment, then you should consider offshoring. There's no difference between me, uh, you know, having a professional in Florida when I'm in Boise, Idaho, than I would if I was in Russia or Latin America or the Philippines. Uh, it just requires me to collaborate and communicate a little bit differently. And I've got to be a little bit more clear with my expectations because you just don't pick up that same sort of... Um, uh, what I would say, just those intangibles that you get when you're in person and you can kind of pick them up by osmosis. That doesn't happen. So you have to be a little bit more intentional, but I, I don't think there's any reason why if somebody doesn't have to be physically present to deliver that service or fulfill that job that they shouldn't be considered uh, or can't be considered offshore. Okay. So now you're a business owner today. You're sitting here. You decided, hey, okay, I want to I wanna utilize offshore talent, global talent, however you want to phrase it. Um, what does the process look like? Like, how would someone go about working with Doxa or just your other companies out there? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there are obviously lots of organizations that help people to um, tap into different talent pools across the world. Um, now, there are ways for people to do it directly, and there are ways for people to do it through an organization. Really, it's a philosophical question. Um, you know, a big part of the industry uses contractors. Contractors uh, are, you know, you, you can contract them directly. You can, you know, give them work for, you know, one to, to 40 hours a week, maybe even more if they're willing to take that on. Um, but you have, you know, it, it does create some other challenges in that they're able to take on additional work. Uh, so you may be paying for time that you're not actually getting. Um, it also, you know, does sort of push people into a gray economy. In third world countries, it's not uncommon for contractors not to pay their taxes, which also means they may not be eligible for some of the social services that are available. Um, I personally, when I first went to the Philippines, I'll just use an example. I saw a lot of people being contracted. I saw really poor work conditions. I saw uh, hardware and technology that was not being uh, well utilized. And, you know, that's also another risk today. Data and security is a big issue. And if you're using a contractor, they're likely using their own laptop, their own access, uh, own systems. Um, you got to be careful about that. 
I personally, when we started Dachshund, I'll just use this as an example, we decided that we weren't gonna contract. We were gonna employ every person directly so that they had the benefits, the stability, the healthcare, the social security equivalent for lack of a better term. Uh, and then we also were using our hardware and our system so that we could be a flexible employer without compromising data and security. So you can go directly, you can contract. Um, but for me personally, it felt like we wanted to lift up the communities that we were supporting and there was a better way to do that. And in fact, doxa is a Greek term for changing the belief in something. And so our whole goal with creating this organization was to sort of change that belief in offshoring and sort of take the stain off. But there are lots of different companies. You can contract directly, you can outsource, and then you can offshore. And I just, if I could make that distinction for just a second, outsourcing is different than what like I do. I'm, I'm in offshoring. And the way that I would distinguish between those is outsourcing is you say, hey, I need a, um, um, uh, a graphic, um, well, I guess the best way to put it is like a, if you were a, a tax firm, you could say, hey, look, I'm going to outsource this work. I'm going to send all the bookkeeping offshore. I'm just going to send you the receipts and the information. You're going to put that all inside the system and then you're going to give it back to me in sort of a final form. Then there's the offshoring, which is someone who actually is leased to that organization. So, you know, we might hire someone and lease them to that person. They work inside their business. They work with their people. They're in their systems. So they're a contractor within the organization. And for that reason, they feel like they're um, more closely connected to the team. There are opportunities for them to grow within the organization. And from a brand standards and an oversight perspective, the company has a little bit more control over what's happening there. And so for us, we thought, you know, the offshoring business was more closely connected with what we needed because we were a, a service-based organization. But there is, like I said, contracting, there's outsourcing, there's offshoring. And then there's, of course, what I would call just the, the fractional workers, Upwork, Fiverr, places like that, where if you just need a logo design, you can get that relatively easily. Interesting. So if I if I'm sitting here today and I decide hey, I I want a in internal accountant for my business to help with bookkeeping or whatever it is, so that person is actually an employee of Doxa, but then you contract or use the term lease to my company. Yeah. Is that how that is that how that engagement works? Yeah, that's right. So generally, what we do is we work with our clients to understand sort of what what are the real job skills that they need. Uh, there's lots of companies that, you know, have a host of people sitting on their bench, burning a hole in their pocket, and they'd really like to push them into your business. Uh, we felt like that sort of created a conflict. And so we decided that we were going to individually recruit for every role. So if you needed a staff accountant, you'd come to us and say, I need a staff accountant, but I need them to do this type of work. And I need them to have expertise with these types of systems. We'll go out and recruit and find that person. We'll hire them. We'll provide them with the hardware um, that they need to do their job, benefits, payroll, HR, help desk, cybersecurity, all of that. And then we'll lease them to you for the hours that you need in order to get that work done. Okay. And then do you have employees that work for multiple different companies or you just hire for that specific role? Yeah. So the super majority of the people that we, we work with are, um, contracting a particular worker for a full-time need and they are dedicated to them. We don't rotate people around. Um, we do have some fractional workers that support multiple clients because the need was there. Uh, but for the most part, we're trying to focus on helping to bring full-time, dedicated, meaningful work to these countries that we support and then, you know, providing those benefits to the, the employee or the, excuse me, the clients that we serve. Okay. And then, so now I have my I've hired a new employee. 
I am at there's different time zones. So that, like that's the first thing that comes to my mind is are they working in your time zone? Are they working different hours and you're just, it, is it depending on the company? Talk to me just about how the actual scheduling works. Yeah, it's a great question. So there, you know, the Philippines, about 15% of their GDP uh, relies on this outsourcing industry. So it is a critical component of their economy. And for that reason, the government has made massive investments in both infrastructure and education to ensure that they can continue to be a world leader in this space. Uh, you know, about three quarters of a million people graduate every single year. So it's a massive talent pool that works literally around the clock. So there, I always joke that there's a happy hour starting somewhere in Manila at any point of the day because somebody's getting off work. So the reality is when you start to look for somebody for uh, offshore, you just you got to be very prescriptive about what are the hours that you're looking for. We have a lot of people who work uh, the night shift and they work all night because they're delivering services to customers in real time during you know the the Western Hemisphere's day, daytime. But about 50% of our workers actually work a split shift. And this is what we found has been a really great way for those that don't have to be interacting with customers in real time and can still deliver great value. Um, we've start them at 4 a.m. their time, which is two in the afternoon our time. And they work from four basically until one o'clock in the afternoon. That gives them some daylight time with their family, so on and so forth. And then they you know, rinse and repeat the next day. From our perspective, we get three hours of time for one-on-ones, for team meetings, for training, for uh, feedback, so on and so forth. And then that three-hour window, once that's done, they go and crank work and it's in our inbox the next day. So the split shift can be a really powerful way to get the best of, the best of both worlds. Hmm. And then as far as communication and getting them integrated into your softwares, it's I imagine whatever your company's software suite is, you get them all plugged in just like you would a remote employee an hour down the road, right? Totally. That's exactly right. You provision them license and whatever you have, you determine what are sort of the security protocol protocols that need to be applied. Uh, and then they would work inside those systems. It's kind of like having a, a, a seasonal employee that might come into a tax firm because on April 15th and October 15th, they're just uh, inundated with uh, all sorts of work. Um, it could be, you know, uh, like you have a contractor that's going to work for the organization for 90 days to push a project through. It's basically the same sort of uh, existence. It's just on a more regular basis. And what does the cost and the pricing look like? You're, I would imagine if I want to hire this internal accountant for $50,000 a year, DOXA takes care of that, and then you guys get some percentage of total compensation. Is that how that works? Yeah, so I'll just I'll just clarify. Uh, for example, um, a staff accountant today in the Seattle Boise area at a minimum is is seventy five grand, and when you include four hundred one k taxes, benefits, insurance, hardware, software, I mean, this is a hundred thousand dollars plus is the investment that you're making to employ this one individual. And if you're, I'll speak from my experience, having done a lot in Kazakhstan and Vietnam and the Philippines, uh, in general, you can look to save anywhere between 60 and 70% on the fully burdened costs. Wow. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty significant benefit. Uh, if you can find the skilled mm -hmm. labor that can deliver similar value, uh, it's pretty hard to argue with the value. You mentioned productivity and efficiency earlier. I know some people have mixed feelings on this new remote environment that COVID 
kind of forced many companies to pivot into. And some are saying, hey, this is way more efficient for my business. Like, I get a focus. I don't have people walking in my office every 10 minutes. I can get real efficient. Some people are like, no, I want to be back in the office for collaboration. What what do you say, someone that's been in this area for a while, just from an efficiency, collaboration, productivity standpoint? Well, uh, one, I would say they got to get over that. Um, you know, the reality is the world is moving in that direction. And it was before COVID. COVID just was the great accelerant from that standpoint. Um, look, up until about three months ago, I was the CEO of two organizations, 500 plus employees between the two of them, and not one person had an office. Uh, we don't have a storage closet, nothing. We were fully remote. So uh, I've certainly, I'm a big believer in this remote sort of movement. And it's something that I believe is going to continue to stick right now. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, I want to be back in the office. I want to spend a little bit more time. I miss my friends, but the reality is it's just, it just doesn't work. So the other day I was having a conversation in one of our board meetings and we were talking about the fact like, Hey, should we be a hybrid organization? Right? Cause we did a survey of our team. What we found is 45% of our workers absolutely wanted to work from home. No matter what 8% of our workers, really would like to be in an office and the rest, which is like 43% or 44%, whatever the number is, uh, wanted to work in the office one day a week. So 92% of my organization didn't want to be in office except for a portion of them wanted to be there one day a week. There's no chance as an employer, I'm going to take on office space for five days a week so that you could go in for one. It's the most expensive, either be in an office or get out of an office. Um, what other, what other advantages are we missing then? Or am I missing? We got, some would argue, I mean, it's probably more productive and efficient from a cost standpoint. There's obvious advantages. What other advantages are we missing? Well, so one of the things that we actually found uh, when we first started going down this path is people said, well, you know, you got to keep jobs in the U.S. Like you're taking jobs away from them and uh, your workers are going to quit because they're going to be afraid that you're going to shop, you know, send all those jobs offshore. So when we first started going down this path, we put a stake in the ground. We said, hey, I want to be really clear. And this is a guide in financial. We believe this is a capability we have to develop, but we are not going to eliminate jobs as a result of going offshore. The goal is not to cut costs or excuse me, to cut costs, but is to actually scale faster. And so we're trying to develop more capacity. And we thought, you know, if we do this right, then we should be able to create more opportunity onshore as a result of that. And so what ended up happening was we started to invest in bringing on more talent offshore. As a result of that, we needed more supervisors and more managers onshore to help uh, facilitate that work. So it created some development opportunities. We also started hiring in different areas, which created a little bit more margin to invest in not only our people. So as a result, we were able to scale wages faster, but also to invest more in technology. We started this whole digital transformation as a result of that because it had helped us uh, from an arbitrage standpoint. If you look at Guidant Financial, just in 2020 and 2021, over half the workforce took on a new role. So we've actually grown the size of our employment base in the U.S. People are making more and they're taking on new opportunities as a result of sort of this innovation cycle that's been created because of that. So, you know, I'm a big believer, as you can tell, that people need to start to consider this as a real opportunity. I am not a fan of cutting jobs to move them offshore. I'm a fan of using this as a strategy to create more stability and growth opportunities uh, for businesses. Yeah, well said. Besides the, what other hesitations do you see from business owners besides, hey, I'm taking jobs from the U.S. moving offshore. What are some of the other hesitancies that you see? Yeah, I think a lot of people just, um, especially small businesses, 
don't have the training and onboarding developed in a mature enough way for them to be able to onboard even remote employees. Forget offshore, right? Just remote uh, team members. Most of, of small business and medium-sized businesses use uh, what I would call side saddle is the way to train. They'll say, hey, look, um, Drew, Dave is our new employee today. He's going to sit with you for the next week and just watch you and ask questions. And that's sort of their training program. And then they release them into the wild. That doesn't work very well in a remote environment. And so that's one of the big things that you know we talk to people about is you really have to be intentional about how you train and how you onboard. And that's something that a lot of people need to sort of bring back up to standard, I should say, with how the, the world has moved. Um, the time zone on which you talked about is always a big concern for people. Uh, but what I found is that most people are really flexible about that split shift we talked about. And that tends to be a really good sort of um, what I would call balancing act between what the business needs and what's best for the team member uh, and their life overall. Uh, the last thing that comes to mind for me is really what I would call data insecurity. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, concern around what happens to my data, what happens to my information. Um, most businesses are moving to the cloud. That certainly helps. Uh, but we've added some additional uh, things, at least in terms of what we do, to try and help with that. We, Because we're a remote uh, organization, we had to put more sophisticated remote management tools in place so that we could make sure that software updates and security patches were being pushed uh, automatically um, so that we could lock down what type uh, or whether people could actually download information to their computer, spinning up uh, virtual workstations in the cloud so that things don't end up on the hard drives. I mean, there's lots of things that you could be doing um, that will help with uh, you know, with that, the risk is still there. I mean, the reality is that there's, there's no sort of uh, perfect solution, but I think there are, are ways that you can certainly mitigate the risks. Are there, are there ways you help business owners, managers with the training aspect? To well, me, that I was mean, the it, one, that was the one negative that I thought of at least. So do you help with that or? Yeah, we actually do. So every single person report, I mean, we're the employer of record, right? So the people that work on our team, even if they're billing with another client, report to a team leader internally. And that team leader is there to, to not only um, make sure that they're doing the work they need and track the KPIs that we've sort of agreed with the client on, but also invest in them as uh, people and professionals. And part of that is making sure that they're being adequately trained. And so even part of our onboarding process, the, the team leader internally works with whoever is kind of the quote unquote hiring manager for that particular role to build a training and onboarding plan that would be sufficient for that individual. You know, ultimately we can't be experts in every single person's business, but we can certainly help to facilitate the right process to sort of help bring that person along faster. How, how big do companies need to be to engage with DOXA? Is it, do you have like a minimum number of employees or like, I'm just trying to think through the logistics here. Yeah. When I first started looking at offshoring and I went to the Philippines, I was surprised by the fact that there was these massive, uh, massive organizations, billion dollar business process outsourcing groups. And then there was these very, very small mom and pop shop virtual assistant organizations. The VA, we wanted something different than that. VAs are great generalists. They're kind of the Swiss army knife for the entrepreneur, but that we needed more skilled talent. And then, then there was these large BPOs where the problem was we were not big enough to even come close to hitting their radar. They wanted us to sign multi-year contracts, sign up for 50 to 100 seats as a guaranteed minimum, even to just get their attention. So when we started DOXA, I really wanted to make it easy for people to say yes. 
We'll make it easy for them to, to get started going down this path. So we don't actually have a contract minimum. You can start with one person if you want to. And then we sign perpetual agreements. They last forever unless you give us notice. And then it's a 30 day out. So make it easy for people to say yes. And if we're not delivering value, then people can leave with the 30 day notice. And it's very, very simple. We ask for the 30 days because we need to manage that situation with the team member. And you know, our whole goal is to sort of maximize human potential and treat our people uh, as people, not as product. And so the 30 day notice is just there to make sure that that can be appropriately managed. Interesting. What else am I, what other topics am I missing on offshore and what, what am I missing? You know, we talked about the types of roles. I mean, I think I just want to go back and reiterate that, that, you know, most people think about it as VAs or data entry, things like that. And those are great. Those work. Uh, I've seen that done well, many, many times we do that. Um, but I really think, you know, I would just, I would just encourage people to think about if, if they're about to hire for any role, just ask the question, does this person need to be physically present to deliver on that job? And if the answer is no, then it's worth considering whether outsourcing is an option for them. But ultimately, I think, you know, I think really it's a philosophical question for the business. Um, the only other thing I'll note is that if somebody decides they're going to go down this path, it can create in uncertainty or insecurity within their own organization. So they got to be really clear about the strategy and open with the team about their intention. And so, you know, I talked about this earlier. We set this entire, we had an all company meeting to say that we were hiring four people in the Philippines. Like, like that's a, that's a lot of time and energy that we invested just to make a quick announcement about four hires. But we, we knew that it was a strategic shift for the organization long term and that it was going to be really important for people not only to understand it, but to make sure that they were uh, going to support it and not sabotage it. I'll make sure to link your podcast in the show notes. But what does having, I'm curious out of your words, what does having a borderless mindset actually mean? Yeah. So we started, so thanks for, for asking about that. The, the future is borderless is the name of the podcast. Obviously there's a tie into borderless talent, which is uh, the way that we describe uh, offshoring, right? But I really wanted to elevate the conversation to say, look, there, there are, the world is changing really, really rapidly. And I wanted to find people that weren't constrained by conventional borders, both physically and metaphorically, and talk to people that are doing unique and interesting things that would help businesses go further and faster. And so I've been reaching out to entrepreneurs, uh, human interest stories, uh, and even coaches and people that are within that sort of ecosystem that can help uh, small business owners, uh, entrepreneurs like myself um, to continue to grow and scale in a rapidly changing world. Awesome. I, I was thinking I'm going to make sure to uh, send your services out to a lot of tax accountants that I know that are struggling to find local tax CPA work. But it's like that's something that you don't need in an office. Absolutely. I mean, it's so funny because if you look at the, the team that we have, my guess is about a quarter of them are finance professionals. And they have everything from accountants to bookkeepers, CPAs, AR professionals. Um, you know, that is something that is an abundance. So there's an abundant source of talent in lots of different geographies, but especially in the Philippines where they speak great English uh, and where, you know, the, the accounting systems mirror that of the U.S. And same with the legal system. You know, they actually use case law in the Philippines uh, within the legal uh, system there, too. So there's a lot of translation between those different professions. Shifting gears a little here, just to pick your brain about business and entrepreneurship as a whole, why you did this, but why is it so important for business owners to recognize like, Hey, we need to pivot. 
I, I feel like it's a tough pill to swallow for many, but why is that so important to be able to recognize when to pivot? When to pivot? Yeah. <laughs> well, because uh, my belief is that when you write a business plan or once you write a business plan, it's wrong. So, you know, you put these, we all, we all put something on a piece of paper. We build this wonderful Excel spreadsheet that tells us that we're brilliant and this business is going to be the next, you know, Apple. But the reality is that um, it, most of the assumptions are wrong. And so you have to adapt and learn really quickly. In fact, my belief is that the most successful entrepreneurs are those that are less in love with their plan and more in love with learning as they go. And because they are, they're able to adapt at a much faster pace than the people around them. So that's, that's why I think it's really important. How, how do you, as someone who's running multiple businesses, do you hire coaches, consultants? Like, how do you continue to learn as you're leading organizations? Yeah, I mean, I, I, hate to, I hate to repeat things that are so cliche, but it is true that even at its height, you know, Tiger Woods had a coach, right? So um, I will tell you that since we started even Guidant Financial and now we've moved into Doxa and even some of the deals that I've done in between, I've always had a board. Now, um, I've raised some capital, but the reality is I've always been in a controlling position. So I don't have to have a board. They can't fire me. But I always put a board in place because I felt like I needed people who would hold me accountable and also collaborate with me on the long-term vision for that business. Um, I've always had a coach. I have one now. In fact, one of my uh, the podcasts uh, that I recently did is a coach that has been someone with me on and off for years because they're so helpful in putting an operating system in place. And when you take that vision that you and the, your board create for that business long-term, then they help to sort of consolidate that down into a crystallized strategy that now the team can go out and execute on. And then I've always been a fan of hiring people that are much smarter and better at the things that you know they need to do within the business so that you know we move from vision to strategy and execution uh, in a really effective way. So I was able to be, you know, the CEO of two organizations for years because uh, we had great systems, great process, clear strategy, a very a big vision, uh, and an engaged workforce. And I think the combination of those things are are really powerful. So you had a board from essentially day one of starting these, or is this something that you put in place as the companies grew? Yeah, so we started guiding. I would say we operated for the first year or so without a board and ultimately realized it would be really in our best interest to have people who who had more experience than us, who were well-connected in the industries or competencies that we wanted to tap into further and who could uh, push us and hold us accountable long-term. So those, you know, that was something that we put in place at Guidant. And then every organization that I've been a part of either uh, funding or uh, starting uh, I want, I, we've always made sure that there's a board in place to help. How do you recommend startups going about putting a board in place if, say, they don't have a lot of capital backing them or they don't want a yep. lot of capital? Are these paid positions? How do you, how do you make it worth their time? Well, it can be both. Uh, I can tell you my first board was not a paid board. Um, I do, I do now, uh, have compensation in place for boards, but, um, I think, you know, if you're talking about startup organizations first, I think there are a lot of people who have had great success in their life and they just want to help others. So I think there's a lot of people that would love to be part of a board, uh, because they really want to help. There are also people who want to be part of boards because they want to put it on their pedigree. Uh, and that's really important to them to make sure that that looks, um, you know, it's helping to sort of frame them in a certain, in certain ways. 
Boards will take cash compensation, they'll take equity, they'll even take in-kind. So even startup entrepreneurs who are restaurateurs, if they wanted to have someone to help advise them in their business, I'll bet you dining credits would be a way that they would take benefits. So there's lots of ways to do it. Um, but the thing I would just suggest is that people get really clear on what it is they're looking for from the board. You know, are they looking for strategic support? Are they looking for industry connections? Are they looking for... Um, uh, really someone who can help sharpen your competencies in certain areas of business uh, and then go out and start looking for the right person because otherwise it's just too easy to find someone that you feel like you've got good synergy with and they've got a nice LinkedIn profile and so you invite them on board and spend time with them and report uh, the business performance to them and ultimately to find out the value just isn't there. Someone who's running or I, I don't know how active you are in guiding as we sit today. You mentioned you took a slight step back a couple months ago, but yeah, currently an, I'm currently a board member, but a couple of months ago, um, I stepped down as CEO and Jeremy, my business partner for the last 20 years has stepped into that role. Okay. So I'm curious when you were co-CEO and then we can talk today too. someone that's running two large companies, how, what does a day in the life look like for David? Well, it's a good question. So it's funny. I, um, it's busy. There's no question about it. That's one of the reasons why I decided that it was time for me to sort of uh, let go of one of those. I mean, I think at the end of the day, even if you're really, really good at, at running a business, running two just is two X. Uh, and I've got a young family. And so for me, making sure that I could make time for my two girls was really, really important. Um, you know, day in a life for me, uh, you know, first thing in the morning, I always try to do something that is helpful to my, uh, my health. That could be some sort of uh, mindfulness, of mindfulness, like a gratitude journal, uh, and or meditation, or a workout. But I think making sure that I give my chance, uh, give me, give myself a chance, sort of to start the day with a clear headspace is really important. Um, the second thing is I always try to make sure that I've planned out my day. It's really easy to let the day uh, manage me if I don't manage it, and so I make sure that I get very clear on what's the one or two things that are most important for me to get done today uh, to be able to advance things forward. And then, uh, and then I spend a lot of time looking at numbers, you know, running two businesses, you can't spend a lot of time operating them. So you have to spend a lot of time thinking about them, uh, and looking at the numbers and trying to identify trends and understand where there's coaching opportunities, where we need to start, um, applying more resources or looking further under the hood. Uh, and the last thing is just coaching people. My, my, uh, my role has been to develop leaders. Um, and so, I spend a lot of time uh, with the team trying to think about where are opportunities for them to learn and grow. How can I push their capacity and their capabilities to help them stretch a little further, a little faster? Um, and that's that's kind of what the day looks like. I mean, certainly there's lots in between, but um, but I think those are sort of the, the, if I were to think thematically on a day-to-day -day basis, those are the things that are most important. How do you set time aside to make sure you're staying creative? Do you, there are days of the week where you're like, hey, I'm not going to work in the business. I'm going to work on the business. I mean, I've heard people use that phrase. Is it like once a quarter you do an offsite? Do you have any ways that you recommend yeah. entrepreneurs staying yeah. creative? Well, look, I've had a business partner for the last 20 years and Jeremy and I are, are equal partners in both the businesses that we operate today. So we have, you know, I'm, I'm as fi financially married to him as anybody in the world. And we've actually always treated our relationship kind of like a marriage in that, you know, we have quote unquote date days. Uh, every other week we spend a half a day together talking about the businesses, thinking about the future, um, sharing things that we're learning. Um, sometimes it's on a walk, sometimes it's in a coffee shop, sometimes it's in front of a whiteboard. 
It all depends on, you know, sort of what we need there. I've been really fortunate, though, because a lot of partnerships have dissolved. And then, you know, a lot of the partnerships that I've seen over the years have dissolved. Uh, Jeremy is someone that he and I have have been able to build a great partnership that's highly collaborative. Um, and it keeps us thinking, you know, collectively thinking about where we want to take uh, those things in the future. So uh, dedicated space every other week, a half a day. Uh, and no, nothing can, nothing except for a family need, uh, is allowed to move it around. How do you encourage or motivate your team to stay creative? Cause I, I'd imagine that's a big part of any organization's success is, you know, the, all the whole team being creative and new ideas. How, how do you encourage as a leader for your team to stay creative? Well, I think one, we've made it, we've made it okay for people to fail. So I think a lot of leaders have, um, they focus more on perfection than progress. And for that reason, they create an environment where people, people can't really do their best work because there's too many constraints or there's too many iterations. Um, I think, I think, so there's a philosophical difference that we, we want people to fail. And as long as we do it fast, then it's not a big issue. Uh, the second thing is, I, I think we do some unique things in terms of um, the business. We actually measure entropy. We have this process we we put in place called entropy mapping, which is, allows us to under, to to leverage the entire organization and understand where are there drains in the system. So entropy is just the you know law of physics that says that everything breaks down over time. So whether it's your body, the Roman Colosseum, the forces at play are constantly breaking those things down, and unless you reduce the entropy within the system, eventually entropy wins. So every, every six months, we as a team measure the entropy within the system across uh, sales and repeat sales, branding, uh, innovation and disruption, uh, vision and values, culture, uh, throughput and production. There's, there's nine different um, components that we measure. And then once we've identified where the top two or three places are, then we go into problem solving mode as an organization. What would you tell your uh, 25-year-old self if it was someone beginning their entrepreneurial journey? Looking back, what would you tell yourself or any advice you'd give? Uh, I would tell my 25-year-old self, um, it's okay to not know. Uh, you know, when I was a little bit younger in my career, I always wanted to have the answers and sometimes I made them up. Uh, and I think the reality is that vulnerability is one, a powerful leadership tool, but it also opens up people to, to help in areas where we really don't have the answer. So I think if I, I do that, I'd drop my ego a little bit and just uh, encourage myself to be a little bit more authentic about what we really know and what, what we really think. You mentioned what got you into business in general was just the idea of investing specifically in the stock market. But I'm curious, just on a high level, we don't have to go into detail, but how do you think about investing your own money, your time, and reinvesting into businesses? Yeah, I, it's an interesting question. You know, somebody asked me this the other day, and I said, you know, I don't know if I have a real prescribed philosophy. Um, what I can tell you is that um, I'm a big fan of income-producing assets like real estate. Uh, I have a significant amount of my liquid uh, cash invested in equities. Uh, and I do believe that speculating in uh, illiquid businesses is a really exciting proposition. So, uh, you know, I've done uh, private placements or investments in, in startups across uh, everything from neuropharma to health tech to travel uh, and so on. And, and thankfully, I've had a really, really good uh, hit rate. Uh, but the reality is most people, when they invest in those types of uh, businesses, super majority of them fail. Uh, so I think you got to be really, really careful about making those investments. Uh, 
But yeah, I'm a big fan of, of income producing real estate. And we've even seen this now, like the, the country has gone through and the world has gone through a pretty rough time with the pandemic and yet real estate has continued to do very, very well. And now inflation is hitting and it is something that is a hedge against inflation. And so, um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of real estate, but I would say, you know, I wouldn't speculate with any more than about 10% of my portfolio and the rest I would put to work in things that um, uh, provide a, a nice uh, predictable uh, return managed by professionals who are really good at doing that. And I'm not one of them. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, of leveraging experts in my own business, but also within my investments. How do you think about as an owner of two businesses when it's time to like take some off the table versus reinvesting to continue to grow in those actual companies? How, what's your, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, you know, I'm, I, I probably am one of those people that, um, because I've made some smart investments, haven't had the same pressure to create liquidity out of those, um, you know, those core businesses. Um, that being said, you know, there's some, some philosophies that are worth contemplating. And one of those is, you know, if you're, if you're building a business to sell it, which a lot of startups do that, then the liquidity that comes from that sale is where, you know, you take chips off the table. Um, there may be some, you know, capital events inside if you're, you know, doing a series A or B or C where you get to take some money off the table, but really that ultimate liquidity event, selling it or going public is how you're going to get paid. There are individuals like myself who believe if you build really good businesses, uh, that have really good products and can generate a good margin that someone will want to buy that. And if not, that's okay. It creates a great life. Uh, and then there are some that actually are a little bit more rigid about it. There's actually a book out there that was written by Michael McCallowitz. I think it's called Profit First or Paid First. Look, I, I, I met Michael years ago. His whole thing is pay yourself first. Like actually put it in, in your budget as like a top line expense. It's like you're going to pay yourself first because a lot of business owners end up, end up being, um, uh, potentially have this asset, but they're really cash poor because they're the last one to get paid. They wait until all those expenses are reconciled and then whatever's left, they take a little bit off, the, uh, off of that. Uh, and so oftentimes these business owners are struggling to make ends meet even when their teams are doing really well. Uh, and so I think there's an interesting philosophy that he's put out there that, hey, maybe you should consider paying yourself first or being more aggressive about how you take chips off the table. Uh, but for me personally, I just, I've always felt like if I built a good business I had a good product and it treated people well that, you know, in, I'd be rewarded as a result of that. And so far that's panned out. Do you think it's a mistake for startups to focus on selling before they've even started up? <laughs> uh, you know, um, I would say yes. Um, I, I think again, look, um, it's okay to have a goal of an exit, but I'm not a big fan of saying, Hey, look, we've got X capital. We are going to run and burn this thing up and we're going to sell it or we're going to close it. Um, I don't personally subscribe to that philosophy though, although I know lots of entrepreneurs that have been wild, wildly successful doing it. Um, but for me, uh, that sort of torrid pace, um, has the potential to lose money for investors, lose jobs for people, and also is at the expense of the health of the entrepreneur a lot of times. So can it be done? Absolutely. Have I seen it done well many times? Yes. Um, but I've seen it done wrong more times than well. As a closing question that I always like to ask, what excites you most right now? 
Well, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I've been operating Guiden for 18 years, right? So um, that's something that I felt like I could do very well. And it's something that didn't take a lot of uh, extra energy from me to be able to do. 18 years later, I knew the business, I knew the industry, I knew the players, I knew the partners. Like that was pretty, that was pretty well done. Um, you know, now that I've, I've moved over back into this, not startup because it's a pretty mature business already, but in that environment, I'm, I'm having to learn so fast, learn the industry, learn the players, learn the competitors. Uh, I'm actually helping to, to solve problems for our clients. Like that is actually a lot of fun for an entrepreneur. You know, the, the, the longer the business goes, the bigger it gets, the further you get away from the work. Well, I get to be right back in the thick of things. And it's actually been very, very energizing for me. I've been a lifelong learner and, and this new experience is just kind of forcing me to do that even more. That's awesome. Uh, I will make sure to link your podcast in the show notes, but where else can people find you? Uh, easiest way is on LinkedIn, uh, David Nilsson, or at uh, doxatalent.com. Awesome. Thank you, David. That was great. Thanks for having me.